Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have my newest and bestest friend from the States who loves sales and salespeople, Mike Weinberg, three times best-selling author of New Sales Simplified, Sales Truth, and Sales Management Simplified. Before I begin, if you have not read these books, you are an idiot. Get out there, buy them, read them, consume them, and apply them. He is the one voice in the wilderness that you absolutely have to pay attention to. He is a sales truth teller, and it is my absolute pleasure. Mike Weinberg, hello. I think I may have met someone who is more blunt and more direct than I am. And what a treat to be with you (laughs) and your audience, Marcus. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Welcome to The Muppet Show. As you know, the format for this is the two old geezers, Stapper and Waldorf. So, listeners, be prepared to be upset and offended. It is our intention, deliberate and stated up front, to rip the scales from your eyes and essentially tell you the painful, cold, hard truth without pulling any punches. So, Mike, let's start with both yours and mine favorite topic, idiot leadership. Why is it that there are so many business leaders who do not value sales? I have no idea how to answer that question. I don't know, but there is a lot of... Yeah, we just moved to the next question. I tell you this, Marcus, there is a lot of idiot sales leadership. And part of the reason I wrote my sales management book is because I was so tired of being called in to help a broken, you know, in air quotes, right? A broken sales team only to spend a week or two on the ground and find out that the problem was culture, leadership, management, bad compensation, disrespect for salespeople, right? So it's everywhere. I mean, the the leadership problem is so much larger and so much more impactful than the sales problem. One thing I know you and I have both seen is the sales expert. Talk to me about some of your war stories where there is a sales expert in a leadership role who seems to know best? Well, typically, I see that play itself out in two ways. I see a senior sales leader, sometimes even the business owner or the founder in a smaller company, who either has such an enormous ego that they can't get out of their own way, or they're such a control freak that they want to micromanage every little single detail. And both of those destroy sales morale. And unfortunately, what I what I find from these supposed self-proclaimed executive sales experts is they don't know anywhere near as much about selling as they proclaim it they do. But they are really good at talking down to and deflating and embarrassing salespeople. In fact, I tell one story in the book and I actually fired this client because he wouldn't listen and he was the problem. He hated the sales team. In fact, he hated them so much that on the day that the company set a record for the most sales it had ever achieved in a single quarter, at the company meeting, he went around and thanked every department from finance to engineering to product management, marketing to the janitorial staff. You know who he didn't thank for a record sales quarter? Let's have a a stab, sales, absolutely. Yeah, and you know how I know that? I wasn't even in the room. Five minutes after the meeting, I started getting text messages from the salespeople, What's, what the hell's wrong with this guy? He hated salespeople. So how could you possibly work in an environment like that when sales is as much about the heart as it is about the head? And when you have a demeaning, micromanaging, high ego jerk who's a, for a boss 
who only whines and complains about how poorly you're doing as a seller, but doesn't give you good direction, doesn't equip you with the weapons you need, doesn't have a clear strategy, right? And treats you like dog meat, sometimes even gives you extra work to do that has nothing to do with selling because they use you as free labor as a salesperson. Oh my goodness, like, right? I'm sure you see this too. Absolutely. And what flabbergasts me is that they don't realize the consequence of doing this because I put money on it. A number of those salespeople turn to you to be their reference for their next job. Yes. There you go. Next question. You and I both have a message to deliver around sales management. We recently did a study on sales management. And one of the things that was really telling was that only 5% of the training budget is dedicated to sales management for sales. Only 6% of sales managers are qualified for the role. But what we both have observed is that it is more important to have a good manager with an average team than to have a bad manager made up of individual superstars because the result that you will get will typically be substantially better. So let's start with what are the qualities of an outstanding sales manager? Wow. Let me just make a point before we even get into that great question. I would just challenge your audience, particularly the leaders who are listening to go back and replay that last minute as Marcus was sharing, because it it affirms exactly what I see. The sales leader is the key. The sales executive, the frontline sales manager is the absolute key, A, to a healthy, high-performance sales culture, and B, to driving results for the long term. And you can train the hell out of your salespeople, and you can talk about sales enablement until the cows come home. Nothing is going to change for the long term if we don't get culture, accountability, leadership, compensation, talent management, all that stuff right on the front end. So. Having said that, your question, what makes a great sales leader? And I'll start with this, and I'm curious for your take. And it's very different than what makes a great salesperson. I find the salespeople are best when they're self-focused and they're selfish and they're very protective of their time and it's all about them. And they're not all caught up in doing other things. Sales managers, on the other hand, need to be others-focused. You don't win on your own. You don't win playing the hero. You win by multiplying yourself into your people. You win through them, not on your own. So that requires a radical reorientation of your focus and how you spend your time. So the first characteristics I would say is other-centered and actually slightly lower ego than the typical salesperson. So I'll, I'll start there. I'm curious for your take on that. I absolutely agree. I'll give you a great example of this. I um, have a client and there were two sales directors. One really didn't spend a lot of time coaching. They hired another one for another division. His division absolutely took off. He focused on the leading indicators and made sure that the emphasis was on daily unique effective conversations, driving velocity through the pipeline and making sure that everybody was focused on developing 300 to 500% of qualified prospects moving to closable. He spent his time on daily hiring activity and building the bench. When he hired, he onboarded over 120 days, making it explicitly clear exactly what was expected every day and how they were going to be measured. He coached 70 to 80% of his working day was spent 
in the field with his salespeople, and they smashed their number. And the people that he hired within two weeks to one quarter were at quota and became the top performers over the people that he inherited. Whereas the other team, which he didn't have control over, consistently performed that between somewhere between 40 and 60% of quota. And his belief was, he personally believed that he wasn't a very good salesperson. And so I'm really curious about this because one perennial mistake I see executives make is the idiot manager who gets fired is then replaced by the top salesperson and you end up getting a double whammy by losing a good salesperson and gaining an atrocious manager. What's it going to take to stop that act of total moron uh, behavior? I don't even need to comment. Yes, agree. All of that happens exactly the way you articulated it. And there is no surprise that the gentleman you were referring to and the story you told was so successful. I want to point out something you said. I think some people will skip by. I love the phrase you use. You use a similar phrase to some of the best executives I work with. You said that this manager was constantly recruiting and he was building his bench of candidates. I never see that happen. And it is a high value activity. If you are doing your job as a manager, which means you are, you are maximizing the performance of your top producers and making sure you keep them happy and motivated and challenged, but you are also quickly identifying underperformance and therefore you are coaching up or coaching out people that are not cutting it. So in that situation, you always should have some turnover, whether you're growing and you need to add to your, your staff or you are changing out some people in the bottom who have proven they can't cut it. And the only way you're going to find the right candidates is that if you continually recruit ahead of the need, it's like we yell at our salespeople about prospecting. They don't prospect because they're busy or their funnel seems to be full for a minute. And then they turn their back and, and go in reactive mode and their funnel doesn't stay full. Same thing for managers. You have got to recruit ahead of the need and keep that funnel full so you can get the best talent. In terms of the question slash statement, I don't know how you stop it. I don't know why we would promote our best salesperson to manager. I regularly coach salespeople not to go into management. It's less fun. You have less freedom. And there's a good chance you're going to make less money. Why would you sign up for that gig? It's nepotism. It's ego because we think we want to be in management. And I have friends that have made that transition. And they do great. They were more wired like a manager. But for the most part, I find miserable salespeople who used to love the freedom and the enjoyment of being on top of this as a sales producer. And now they're caught in corporate meetings and crap and they get 200 emails a day and they realize not only am I not getting to manage salespeople, I'm not getting to sell and I do all this nonsense. So I would just caution executives, be very careful about the double whammy that Marcus described because it, exactly you have a bad manager who doesn't know what he's doing and, and you end up losing your best salesperson out of production. And then what are you going to do with that? Terrible. Well, I think to some degree, to be a manager, you have to be a masochist and be able to take the punches. Because I think managers have four or five critical functions. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day, protect your salespeople from idiot management, and hold your salespeople to account. Now, to finish the story, that particular salesperson in a reshuffle had someone brought in over him who didn't value what he did. He was more focused on revenue and operations, but he didn't value sales. 
And within one quarter, he went from being the top performer and recognized within the business as being the top employee to leaving and going to a competitor. Now, that is a, a really interesting story for, because it tells us something else, which is that often leaders feel threatened by top performers, whether it's a manager feeling threatened by the salesperson or a senior executive feeling threatened by a successful manager. So my question is this, how does someone who is successful in sales or management protect themselves from the ego of their higher-ups? Wow. How do you protect yourself? I think one of the answers is going to be off the board. And the way you do that is you don't look to those people for affirmation and you have a really good team around you of people who love you, who tell you the truth, who support you. Because if you're working with people that are that broken, who need to have their ego fed by dominating you or taking your credit, it's very hard to change that person. And you may try to have a direct confrontation and conversation, but usually people that are that age and are that set in their ways don't respond that well to being challenged about their ego and how they're upsetting you. So I would say you need to get your satisfaction elsewhere and protect your own emotions. And if you can't do that, my other coaching would be even more drastic. You probably need to leave. Yeah, know your armor. Yeah. And I say this about anti-sales cultures. And I have fired clients in the past and I have coached salespeople to leave. If your company doesn't get it and you work for an absolute moron who doesn't care about sales and is not going to value the sales force and has an anti-sales perspective where nothing you ever do is right, they jerk with your territory and your compensation, they pick on you in public. When things are good, they steal the credit. When things are bad, they throw you under the bus. Do you guys use that expression in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. Throw under the bus. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's a hard thing to say, Marcus, but if it's that bad and you're good at selling, go get a different job because why live like that? And you will always be in demand. If you're a great salesperson, I know in your book, you, you quoted a number I have to take issue with in terms of A players. My experience <laughs> is A players typically come between half and 2%. I thought you quoted a massively overinflated and optimistic number. You said 10 to 12%, I think, which yeah. I, I was in a state of shock. I almost crashed. I thought I was being stingy. You think I was being too generous. That's funny. God, yeah. I think good B-plus players are somewhere between 6 and 12%. But A players are roughly 1 in 200 in oh. my experience. Yeah, you're great on a tough scale, but I'm with you on your point. If you're good, there's such demand for you right now. I mean, there is such a shortage of significant talent in sales and especially in the economy we're in right now. It's don't stay in a tough situation. If it's that bad, get out. Definitely. Uh, Absolutely. And if you're a great manager, you are even more scarce. I mean, only 6% are qualified for the job. That doesn't mean they're A players. It means that they're qualified. That means that they could be a reasonable jobbing B player. But it's a frightening, frightening position, sales management. It's the single most precarious role in any company. And you get next to no training. And th- this is something that flabbergasts me. These are the people who are responsible for the lifeblood of your business and making sure that the people who feed everybody and typical onboarding process is, Mike, congratulations, you are one, off you go. And that's the onboarding process. It's brutal. Typically, what you do was what was done to you. And there are two fundamentals. I know in your books, you talk about 
nothing's really changed. And I absolutely agree. The basics are what matter. But we're in the third generation of sales managers who do not know how to prospect or teach people to prospect and who do not know how to coach. So when you go into your client accounts, how are you addressing the ugly baby, the turd in the room that needs to be addressed? Because if you don't deal with the basics, no amount of throwing money at fancy technology is going to make the blindest bit of difference. And all of your training dollars will be wasted if you end up not training on the basics. Amen. I I 100% agree. I want to vomit when I hear you say that because (laughs) while it's good for my business and good for your business and some of our colleagues whom we trust that are good at this, because sales is broken in so many organizations, honestly, this doesn't make me happy. I wrote about this in chapter one in Sales Manager Simplified. I told my story of becoming a sales manager and how badly I struggled after having been a top producer in multiple companies. And the thing I didn't understand is that not only does everybody want a piece of you, but everybody has an opinion about how you should do your job as a manager. I hated it. I had like little marketing dweebs and you know assistant product managers telling me how to manage my sales team. And everybody wanted me to come to every meeting that had nothing to do with leading, right, leading the sales force and just absolute tremendous, tremendous frustration. So it is, it is really hard. And, and the thing that I'm doing to satisfy my own conscience is when someone calls me up with a sales problem and they want sales training, I immediately pivot the conversation and say, okay, I may be able to help you. And I'll, I'll grant you. And I say this when I lead my, my one day sales management workshops, when I'm inviting the sales executives, managers to come from the public. I'll say this in the beginning. I said, I grant you, your sales team could do better. I absolutely am not telling you there's not a problem there. They could be more strategic in targeting accounts. They could take back a higher percent of their calendar and spend more time selling and less time babysitting customers or a territory. They could tell a better story, articulate more value, run a better, more consultative sales call, ask better questions, present with more power. All of the stuff I just listed your salespeople could do better, comma, but, comma, if you don't address accountability and culture and compensation and fun and lead good sales team meetings and go out in the field and observe and coach your people, nothing will change for the long term. So part of the way I address it, Mark, is is I just, I hit it head on. And I ask questions about, hey, tell me about your talent and your turnover and show me your compensation plan and how much direction are you giving the salespeople and sales manager? How often do you meet with them one-on-one for accountability? And how often do you get across the world to visit with your people and go in the field and watch them work? And the answers I get are typically pathetic because most sales managers are overwhelmed and overworked and overconnected and they get 200 plus emails a day and they're being dragged into all kinds of corporate crap meetings, and they spend very little time coaching and no time doing real good accountability, and they run crappy sales team meetings. At the end, if I'm in a small enough company where I'm looking at the owner or the CEO, the message gets across. Unfortunately, when I'm in a gigantic company and I have that conversation, there's not much that can be done. It's hard to change a Titanic. So you, you focus on helping one little division or one executive break free or one of my best engagements for a big a big data company, which was doing sales management work around the world, was helping their own sales managers take control of the culture on their own team and help them not to be the hero, but to make heroes and help them do good accountability and help them point their team and help them coach and manage the pipeline. And you can have an impact at the lower level 
But if it's broken at the top, as one of my mentors said, it's broken. So I know it was a long answer, but I liked what I was saying. Great answer. And I'm with you 100%. What really still pisses me off, if I'm being blunt, is the emphasis on the irrelevant, the futile, the symptom. Dave Brock, when I interviewed him a couple of months ago, came up one with one of the really, smartest guys, one of the smartest guys in this whole business. Absolutely. And he came up with a really interesting observation from his research, which is selling time in front of the customer averages 12 to 21 percent. Now, when you multiply my observation that the average salesperson is only highly productive 25 to 35 percent of any given working day, because the rest of the time they're being sucked into meetings, they're doing reports, they're faffing around with expensive or filling out the CRM, writing pointless proposals for people who will not buy, all that kind of shit. Then what you end up with is somewhere between, I think it's four and seven and a quarter percent highly productive time in front of the customer. Is it any wonder that people are missing their quota? Our research paper that we issued in July last year stated that only 44 or 46% of sales reps worldwide hit quota. Now, that is a damning indictment of management. The fact that the salespeople missed the number means that management were not looking in the mirror because right. they are responsible. They are accountable for getting the best out of their people. And they tolerate non-performance because they are afraid of conflict. They don't want to rock the boat because they don't want an empty chair. And so they don't want to go through the headache and nausea of recruitment because they're not doing it as a fundamental part of their job. So dealing with that lack of productivity, what are the signs that you are looking for when you're doing your initial analysis that tell you that this is a company that absolutely needs to start with training and recruiting better managers? Yeah, it's funny. Most of my work is done through anecdotal observation. And in my practice, this is where it's different. I am doing a little bit less heavy consulting these days and more speaking events and workshops because I'm having more fun meeting more people and, and getting the word out about, about sales truth and sales manager simplified. But when I'm in there, when I'm, when I'm doing an engagement and I'm trying to understand where to start and what, and what the challenge is, I go in and I ask very simple questions about sales management health. I ask about sales management tenure and I look at numbers and I ask really, really simple questions, just like I would in a discovery conversation as you would coach your, your trainees, right? Early on, I want to really understand their situation. So I'm asking about percent of the salespeople making quota. I'm looking at turnover. I'm asking about sales management cadences, rhythms, right? Like, okay, sales manager, Tell me about your one-on-one -on -one accountability meetings. What do they look like? How often do you have them? And when I, when I ask, and you know, you're laughing because you know it's not happening. What happens instead, they run a bad sales team meeting. And because they're not doing one-on-one -on -one meetings, they use the sales team meeting to abuse the salespeople and do pipeline reviews where everybody has to sit through some painful, torturous conversation as the manager picks on different salespeople. That's ridiculous. In 15 minutes a month, you can do a one-on-one -on -one meeting and review results pipeline and activity and let that person go. 
So when I sit down and I say, hey, tell me how often you meet with your people one-on-one and do real accountability, I typically get some bullshit answer that says, you know, I talk to most of my people every day. And if I don't talk to them, I'm emailing them. And I said, I didn't ask you that. I asked you how often you sit down to do accountability, to review their results and make them feel the heat for what they sold against their goal. And did you look in their pipeline and is it, do they have enough in there to make their number this month or this quarter? And what opportunities have they added and what opportunities have they advanced? And if that's no good, are you talking about activity against target accounts? And when I ask that question, they look at me like I'm from another planet and they go, yeah, I don't really do that. So then I, let me just keep going for one more second. So then I go, okay, so you're not doing accountability. Let's talk about coaching. How often do you meet with people to do deal strategy or when do you get in their car and go make sales calls? And not just for a big deal because you got to go to do this giant presentation, but when you just watch somebody work and go lunch and have a beer and give them some feedback. Well, I don't really have time. Okay, so you don't do accountability. You don't get in their car and do feedback. Let's talk about your sales team meetings. What do they look like? Oh, they suck. They're boring. And I'm like, well, so that's where I'm, you know what I'm saying? When I'm doing my analysis, I'm asking these very simple questions. And most people are struggling in the basics accountability, coaching, field work, sales team meetings. Oof, that's dangerous. So for any salespeople listening to this, first of all, this is carte blanche to go and speak to your idiot boss. But what I want you to do is notice how fantastic Mike's presumptive questioning was. You asked the question, acting as if they are already doing what you're about to sell them. Because what that does is it creates a fantastic gap between what they're actually doing and what they should be doing. And it helps them to realize that they're the problem. And you can use that tactic wherever you are, whatever you're selling. So thank you for that, because that was a real masterclass. It was the the bonus. I appreciate, you know, what I like about you, Marcus, is I like your inflated view of me. So thank you. (laughs) It's all right. I look forward to reciprocation at some point. Yes, we'll we'll do that. (laughs) So this then brings me to another really important issue. Because you talk about in uh, your books about hiring and the idiocy, the myth of the one-size-fits-all approach to recruitment. Do you mind expanding on that? Yeah, it's a simple concept. Most companies have not done the hard work to really define the sales role. And when you actually look at the burden placed on most salespeople, they do everything. They cook, they clean, they do the dishes, they hunt, they onboard, they service, they account manage, they play frontline uh, CSR, customer service rep. It's ridiculous. And I'm typically called when a company is not bringing in enough new sales. And I sit and I go look at the burden placed on the salespeople because they spend all their time doing service work or babysitting accounts or maintaining a territory. And I have to ask questions of the management and say, this doesn't make any sense. You're burdening everybody with this one thing. And then I go to the question really that you, you're going to, which is not everybody is wired the same. God made us differently. And there are people in sales roles who are awesome at relationships and follow-up and technical stuff or product knowledge. They're good at renewals, but they hate the hunting part of the job. They hate risk. They hate rejection. They're conflict diverse. All those things that you probably assess people for, right? And what and what you do, and you go, they're not wired to go bring in new business. And yet we live perpetually frustrated that we have people that I call zookeepers, right? Some people call them farmers, but I call them zookeepers because the customer's alive. 
It needs to be fed. It needs to be protected. It needs to be bathed. It poops on the floor and you got to clean that up. Like when you get caught managing accounts and you love that stuff because it floats your boat, you're never going to go hunt. Why would you if you get your jollies from serving your existing accounts? At the same time, there are salespeople wired more like I am that are pure hunters. They love to go kill stuff, but they're awful at account maintenance and details and follow through. But yet the way the model's set up, that hunter, when he goes out and kills the big game in the field, he doesn't get to turn it over to somebody else. Our model says, well, you killed it. Now you bring it back to the office. You butcher it. You spice it. You put it on the grill. You serve it to the dinner guests. You stay late and you clean up. So you have these precious few hunters. And instead of getting to spend 75% of their time looking for new business, because you only have a handful of people that can do that, that poor hunter only spends 20% of his or her time selling because the rest of the time they're doing all this admin service maintenance onboarding work that other people are qualified to do. So that's a long answer to tell you that I think that we're all gifted a little differently. And, and a simple question I would challenge executives with is if you're not bringing in enough new sales, is it possible you have staffed your team with people that aren't wired to hunt and or you're overburdening your hunters with a lot of crap that other people could be doing? And if your account managers are living frustrated and not making their numbers, maybe you're asking them to do stuff they can't. So that's my take. Another observation on that that I've seen is that often managers hire in their own image only weaker. That is, again, another massive minefield. I am curious about something. Managers have a function, which is to recruit the best people and then get the best out of them. And you touched on this a lot, that they're not doing enough windscreen or field training. They're ivory tower, spreadsheet jockeys, CRM jockeys. What sales meetings in my book should be learning opportunities listening to the death march of people live from their work of fiction, also known as a forecast, is a waste of, if you have 10 salespeople, every minute that goes by, you're wasting 10 full-time employee minutes. And I think pipeline reviews should be done one-to-one. Sales meetings should be something that are like going to the movies. You should look forward to it. They should be fun. When you come out of it, you should feel uplifted. But so rarely, are sales meetings an event that salespeople look forward to. Instead, it's the whack, the weekly ass kicking. It's a death march. How do you suggest sales managers refocus and pay good attention to turning sales meetings into something that not only do salespeople look forward to, but are proactively fully engaged in and walk out of there better than they went in? Marcus, you are bloody brilliant. And I wish I had this. I'm, I guess we do have this recorded. Say again? I said, you are bloody brilliant. I want everyone to hear that again. I need you. I need that <laughs> clip. I need that clip of the last 45 seconds because you just articulated the problem with almost every sales team meeting. It's drudgery. It sucks. Nobody wants to be there. The salespeople play on their phones. The manager didn't do good preparation. It's used as an inappropriate venue for accountability instead of doing it one-on-one. A sales team meeting, you said it. I think you said it prettier than I've ever said it. It should feel like going to the movie. It should be energizing and equipping. In fact, that's my litmus test. I ask everyone this question. Do the salespeople leave the sales team meeting with more energy and better equipped to do their job than when the meeting began? It's a very simple question. In 95% of the cases, the answer is a resounding no. 
the salespeople walk out of the sales team meeting with less energy than they walked in because they've been beaten on or drained or it's boring as hell. And they're no better equipped to do their job because there was no good interaction. There was no good sharing. It was a monologue. Go, go ahead. I jump in. This reminds me of something related but tangential, which is the number of tools that have been produced by audit for audit purposes. So I'm not picking any particular company, but there are lots of organizations out there that you've got three-day offsites knocking together territory and account plans and all this type of guff. And then they sit in the back of the salesperson's car and they're whipped out when their boss comes around for their annual performance review. And they're not living, breathing documents. One of the things I love about the tools that we've been uh, implementing are they are designed by salespeople for salespeople. They take no more than 20 minutes typically to complete. And every if you do them, uh, do use them, then they help you to advance your relationship, your sale, or better still, uh, in many cases, get out early with a qualified decision. In terms of pipeline, I hadn't thought about this before we started talking, but this is one of my favorites. Pipeline. Why is there so much shit in the pipeline? <laughs> oh my gosh, we're going to go. We're going to go sales nerd here in a second, and we'll talk about <laughs> it. Let me close with one tip on the sales team meeting, because I love where you were going. To managers that are struggling, my best suggestion is to give some of the work away to your salespeople and have yeah. them bring. Fabulous. Oh, we, we're applauding like each other. That, that was meant to stay in. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> I, listen, here, here's what you need to do. Have them come and talk. People love to listen to each other. Ask one of your best salespeople in a certain area to come and share their best practice for securing a meeting or for doing discovery or for busting an objection or for shaping a presentation. There's four sales skills right there. Pick one person on your team in each of those areas and have them come share what they do well and then have a roundtable discussion. Have people bring a success story and it forces people to have one. And everyone's going to go around and share for three minutes how they want a certain deal. And then take Take time and go around the table and let other people ask questions. One of my favorite ways to upgrade a sales team meeting is do deal strategy brainstorming. Have a salesperson bring a very tough situation, share it with the team, tell everybody where they're stuck, where it is in the pipeline, what's going on, and then go around the room and let everybody play sales coach and ask hard questions. And together, everyone will get a ton of value. And I promise you, they will leave the meeting with more energy because of what they covered and better equipped to do their job. So along with the great sales tools that Marcus has that, that are, can be very valuable, bring in participation so the manager doesn't have all the work. I promise you good will result. That manager that I was talking about earlier, we introduced a daily huddle. And everyone had 90 seconds to give three behavioral commitments for the day, report on their behavioral commitments for the day before, and how they're going to make up any shortfall, capture three lessons and share them with the group, and one roadblock that they're facing. Now, what was very interesting was he very smartly evolved it so that he handed over responsibility to people within the sales team to take on managing the facilitation of that huddle. And once a week, one of them would do a 10-minute teaching session on a particular topic and tackle that. And their performance went through the roof. The team was so cohesive, and everybody was loyal. They worked towards helping mm. each other get better. The rising tide raises all boats. Individually, they were selfish as producers. But when they came together, they shared their knowledge. And oh that my was gosh. Fabulous. Marcus, that story you're sharing, and as you talk about 
that manager, it, it reminds me of a company that had the best sales culture I've ever seen. And I, I tell that story in the book, their sales team meetings were amazing. It was like a locker room. It was fun. It was loud. They picked on each other, but it was in love. They were competitive, but in the team meeting, they were for each other and they would do role play and practice and mock sales calls and mock presentations. And the people in the room were brutal in their feedback because they were trying to raise the game of their teammates. And they basically said, we practice hard because we want to win. We want to get it right here in the meeting room. So when we go out in the field, we all look great. It just encouraged me. It's the healthiest. I mean, I get goosebumps telling that story because I almost never see a culture that's that's that together. Yeah, they were competitive. They had scoreboards and whiteboards and everywhere leaderboards, and they were crazy goal focused. And they and they fought with each other. But when they got together as a team, it was one team, and they they knew let's be great together. So, Mike, let's wrap up on one other aspect, which is the responsibility of the salesperson. Now, I, I personally rarely blame the salespeople when the management haven't got their act together and they're not looking in the mirror. But what are the responsibilities of a salesperson for their own development and their own progress? Well, first of all, we're all 100% responsible for our own personal development. My best friend named Rob, who is a mentor to me, always reminds me of this. He says, you are your most valuable asset. So how are you investing in yourself? What are you reading? Who are you talking to? What are you buying you know, in terms of coaching or whatever else? So we are 100% responsible, not only for our own development, but also for A, our attitude about selling, and B, our pipeline, and C, our results. And you know the fancy psychological phrase is internal locus of control, right? It means we own it. We look in the mirror and we say, it's on me. I got this. We don't blame Trump or Obama or Brexit, or Theresa May, or your new guy. In fairness, it probably was her fault. It, it might have been. It's, it, well, I joke. It's always Obama's fault, and it's always yeah. Trump's fault. Both of them. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in our country, we don't talk politics anymore in business. You usually can't. There's no it's rational too, conversation. Too dangerous. There's no safe place to go, so you just skip it. But top salespeople take ownership. So it means you're responsible for filling your own pipeline. I don't care if your company has inbound marketing. I don't care if there's a BDR team who's supposed to set appointments for you or give you leads. You own your freaking funnel. So you're responsible for creating opportunities and keeping the funnel full. And you're responsible for what you close. That People who take their own development seriously, they own their outcome, they own their attitude, they own opportunity creation, the funnel, and the results are winners, period. I'm fond of Einstein's quote about compound interest. Compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it. He who doesn't pays it. And one of the rules that I teach is based on compound interest, which is the half a percent rule. There is no one in any organization who could not improve their performance by half a percent a day. If you take $100 and you get half a percent daily interest, which is three lessons a day, and you apply those, over the course of a working year of 270 working days, you end up with $373. Now, if the manager does not implement that, then it's up to the salesperson to take personal responsibility to implement the half a percent rule and exercise compound interest in their own performance. You think about that over three years, that's 300% improvement in year one, 900% improvement in year two, 
2,700% improvement in year three. Who would not give their right arm if, as a professional seller for a 2,700% improvement in their performance? It's, first of all, I applaud the math and the mindset. It's unbelievable. And for those of us in sales whose compensation is tied to our performance, I mean, who wouldn't want that? And here's the thing. There is no excuse today. Marcus, right. look what you're doing. Look at this this beautiful, powerful, free content that you're putting out for people to consume, right? Everyone has a smartphone. Everyone has access to the internet. There is more free sales tools and information and affirmation and coaching available than you could consume. If you don't take the time, then it's, you're full. What sort of content are you consuming at the moment that you really rate? You know, I've been reading more non-sales things lately to try to get my own act together from a, a well-roundedness perspective and from a productivity perspective. I was very challenged by a book from Cal Newport about a year ago called Deep Work. He's got a newer book called Digital Minimalism, but I, I got a lot out of his first book, Deep Work, about focus and not multitasking and really owning your calendar. It takes the concept of time blocking to a whole new level. So Cal Newport, Michael Hyatt has become one of my go-to gurus. He's a leadership and productivity expert here in the States, michaelhyatt.com. Very helpful. Focus, again, focus, productivity, quality of life. Because I, like many other people, I'm drowning. I'm holding up for those watching a video. You know, I got my iPhone. We're all overconnected. So that's killing me. I read a Winston Churchill biography on my last vacation. I've read a few books on him. I think he's inspiring to me and challenges me from his background to his screw-ups in his life to, to the person he became and that what he means to your, your nation. So I've learned a lot reading non-sales, non-sales material. That's kind of what I'm, what I'm focused on. I'm always reading about cars. Cars are my hobby. So I'm looking at every new Porsche and car magazines, and that just keeps me excited. A couple of things that you might like to look at. Uh, Farnham Street, fs.blog. Lots around psychology. Fascinating. Great. Really? And Dave Brock put me onto that. Okay. Keith Cunningham's book, The Road Less Stupid. You will love that. Okay. Um, You're it, the it, second it, person. The Road Less Stupid. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And Ray Dalio's Principles. I think those three would be really great reading for you. Thank you. And now, Golden Ticket. If you had a Golden Ticket and go back and advise the idiot Mike at 23 to avoid a lifetime of idiocy and self-sabotage, what advice would you give him? Oh, that's easy. Go for it. Go with your gut and go for something big. I think we're so often so careful or we think there's something good, but we get scared so we don't do it. If I would have listened to myself and my own gut sooner, more often, my life would be different and I would have had more success sooner. Right, advice. Yeah. Think big and trust your gut. Okay, final question then before we wrap up. What are you personally struggling with in life and business? LinkedIn. How's that for a weird thing? LinkedIn and being overconnected and having a hard time doing what I preach, which is time block, high value, high payoff activities and stay focused because I have so many people and this is, this happens and I'm, I'm not bragging here, but this is a reality for people who are in demand and even salespeople have a lot of clients. Sometimes when you're doing well, you have so much work on your plate. It prevents you from doing the work that actually creates business. And today, because everyone is accessible through LinkedIn and I get an obscene amount of messages, 
I could spend four or five hours a day in reactive mode, just responding to people and promoting myself and hanging out, reading things. And while it sounds good and makes me feel good, it doesn't move the needle or fill the funnel, even when I tease myself that, that it does. So I'm struggling with focus and productivity, which is why I'm reading what I'm reading. Do you struggle to say no to people? I'm getting better at that. I'm not super nice. And I understand the importance of protecting your time. So I've gotten better at saying no, both to business and to people that just want a little bit of help, even though I wish I could help more people. You just can't. Two great questions, because I wrestled with the same problem. Okay. One question is, if I say yes to this now, what other promise or commitment will I have to break? That's so good. That aligns with what Michael Hyatt is preaching. That's really good for you to remind me of that. And the second question that goes hand in glove with that is if I say yes to this now, who pays the negative price for my mm. positive payoff? Wow. Yeah. Man, that's yeah. powerful. It's Thank you job. for that. Yeah. Well, it's that's a pleasure. Great. I mean, a talent creates, genius steals. I can't remember who told me, but I'll take the credit now. You have the best one-liners. <laughs> Man, this is good. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much. This has been a fabulous interview, and I hope we can do it again more than once, because I suspect there are many fatted calves that we can slaughter. I think we need to meet again, and I even this conversation is making me want to go drink a slightly too warm and slightly undercarbonated beer right now. <laughs> so, Mike, how can people get a hold of you? Thanks, Marcus. Thank you for having me. What a fun conversation. I'd love to come back and talk more, more about sales with you. Real easy. On social media, it's Mike underscore Weinberg, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, Mike underscore Weinberg. Website's MikeWeinberg.com. Brilliant. Mike, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Go back, listen to this again with a notepad and take notes and apply what you learn. Don't be an idiot and learn about stuff and not apply it. If you don't apply what you learn, you are a moron, okay? So that's me in my most nurturing and friendly. So if you want to get in touch, mkauke at sandler.com, 07515-937-221. And if you want me to come in and kick the ass of your sales team, I am absolutely delighted to do so. But Marcus Kauke signing off. Happy selling.